How was that interaction? Did you tell her about what went on in the past? Oh, yes. Uh, Sisonke was born into politics. Uh, we, When I was in Zambia studying, and wherever I have been, uh, uh, my I took my political uh, activism with me. When uh, when uh, Aunt Stombi, uh, when I married her, she had uh, she was entitled to a house. That house of ours was always visited by comrades from the ANC. When Oliver Tambo came into Zambia, uh, until much later, when uh, Kawunda allocated allocated him a house, uh, a safe house near State House. He would take turns and stay in the homes of people who owned homes. There would have been six, seven or so. And um, so with Oliver Tambo in our house, there would invariably be people coming to meet him. And, and, and Sisonke and the kids knew Sisonke a little more because she was about four or five at the time. It, uh, it was quite clear that uh, I am in the ANC so Sisonke was fully aware. She grew up in a very political environment because then when she went to out to play, there would be kids around there. But in an organized way, there were always meetings of uh, young pioneers, mm -hmm. uh, which was uh, the children of ANC exiles. Uh, and they would all really be taught overt overtly, but told about South Africa, this is South Africa, we're here doing uh, this, coming to, preparing to fight and go back to our country. So she was really immersed in politics right from a very young age. Good morning, good day, or good evening, and welcome to 54 Lights. My name is Kondwani Mwase. The next episode is where I'm from and features an all-access interview with Sasanke Musmai. Contrary to popular belief, Africa is a continent and not a country. It stands as the world's largest, housing some 54 nation-states. It is where over 1.2 billion people live, work, and play. When you ask what people think of when you say Africa, some might say poverty, destitution, or even AIDS. This is, after all, the unflattering, narrow narrative that prevails. On the other hand, some other people might respond starkly different to this same question. Beauty, riches, warmth, strength, Resilience, or my favorite, light. 
lest we forget that the continent, among other things, is a great exporter. And not just of diamonds and minerals, but people. My next guest is no exception. She is one of the continent's finest. Unfortunately for me, she defies definition. Activist, writer, mother, leader. Pick one, or pick them all, and you'll still fall short. All I can say, with unwavering certainty, is that her intellect, her poise, and her grace are big parts of her even bigger personality. But don't take my word for it, I implore you. Look instead to the endorsement by the likes of Stephen Lewis, who's named Sanke to his foundation's board. Or you might want to pick up her book, Always Another Country. It's an intimate and inspiring memoir. So, without further ado, let's meet Sasanke. Here, in part, is our conversation. Maybe we'll start off with, with something pretty straightforward, which is, um, can, can you give me your full name and what, if anything, it means? Ah. So my full name is Sisonke Msimang, and Sisonke means we are together in Isisulu, which is my um, paternal language, and Siswati is my mother's language, but they're almost identical in meaning. So, Do you think to a degree that you, you live up to the meaning of your name? <laughs> um, no one's ever asked me that question. I hope so. I try to, I think when you grow up as a person who lives in many different places, as I have, and who can move relatively easily between um, one type of world and another, whether that's um, racially or social class-wise uh, or culturally, I think it makes it more possible for you to bring people together um, and to kind of serve as a bridge or a translator. So a lot of what I try to do in my writing is to bridge um, people who speak very different languages or who have very different ideas and think about the ways in which their ideas might have some overlaps. So maybe, yeah, maybe there is some togetherness there. Okay. Um, another question, and I'll come, I'll come to, the, to, to, the, to your work in a second, but just sticking with the name, um, if you were to ask the closest people around you, your family, your sisters, your, 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 uh, your, your parents, your mom and dad, you know, when, when your mom was around, um, would you say that, um, what would they say about your uh, living up to your name? Would they say the same thing you just said? Probably, yeah. I think as a firstborn, I tend to, I've definitely tended to be the, bridge between my parents and my siblings <laughs> not always do a very good job but I definitely take that on <laughs> what would you consider to be your profession hmm. <laughs> I don't know that I have a profession I guess at the moment writing so I used to have a fixed sense of what you become when you grow up mm -hmm. um and I always imagined that I would be someone who worked on social justice and policy issues. Mm -hmm. So for a long time, I would have answered that question by saying, 
you know, I work in human rights and democracy and governance. Um, and now I think I have a much more open idea of what a, a career looks like, and it's not one profession. Um, so having, you know, in my in my mid to late 30s kind of switched courses and decided to go into writing full time, I think now I appreciate that I don't really have a profession, but I have certain things that I do for a while um, that keep me energized and that are able to earn me a little bit of income if I'm lucky that, um, you know, that's what I do for the moment. So I have a much more temporary relationship to the roles that I'm playing. If you were to take a stop right now and, and just take stock about your life up to now, and look at your childhood in particular. Do you think there was any particular moment or any particular experience that you had in your youth that pointed you in this direction, Sonke? Hmm. I think it was probably a combination of things. There's, there was no one moment where I decided I care about the world and, you know, and I want to sort of live in the world of ideas and to try to make things better. Um, you know, growing up as I did as part of a community of people who were fighting against apartheid, I think was hugely instrumental in my formation. Um, and I think having parents who really believed, um, you know, earnestly and in all honesty that one day apartheid will be over and that that would happen in our lifetime meant that I saw... Um, people put into practice idealism. idealism. So I saw people have a hope that um, things would be better and that we could end a pretty strong racist regime. And then I saw that actually happen, you know, in my lifetime. So, so I think that really is a big part of why I've chosen the path that I have, um, you know, in advocating for social justice, in trying to improve situations along with like you know big groups of other people because i've seen that it actually makes a difference G given given the uh, gravity of apartheid and what that was for um obviously the people of south africa but really for the world and it, it's mm. it's over being overcome mm. does that does that give you this sense of like hope that kind of anything is possible question because the older I get, the more perspective I have on things. So on the one hand, um, it's easy to look at sort of momentary, you know, arguments or fights that you get into and feel quite disheartened. You know, we're in this moment right now globally of extreme polarization where it seems that we have never been so far apart. Um, you know, whether it's questions of migration, you know, the backlash against multiculturalism, you know, what people are broadly framing as the culture wars, the backlash against women's rights, you know, all of these issues, I think it can feel very depressing. And then if you step back a little bit and you look at the sort of longer arc of history and realize how far we've come, um, it feels less depressing. So on the one hand, I think there's that. And then on the other hand, of course, when you look at the struggle against apartheid and how much we achieved, just as you're beginning to pat yourself on the back and say, you know, this country comes from a place where black people literally had to have a pass in order to move from one area to the other. And as you start to feel good about that, you realize how deeply entrenched the economic legacies of apartheid are and how little progress we've made in that regard. So what I try to 
as much as possible do is to kind of place myself in a zone um, of understanding um, the world as it is mm-hmm. and, and, and understanding that there is also the world as it ought to be and kind of occupying that zone so that you don't get disheartened. You continue to have a measure of hope about the way the world ought to be, but you also understand that the, intrinsically that the world as it is is not always an easy place. Right, right. And, and, and part of what plays into your um, in, into that that outlook is because you've been to different places. You, you you've lived and breathed multiculturalism yep. uh, all your life. Yeah, and I think it's really important um, these days to keep in mind how much multiculturalism is under attack and how fundamentally it is important it is not just for you know, we who are seen as multicultural, because that's always, like, the funny thing, right? Multiculturalism, you know, means, like, black or brown, whereas, actually, multiculturalism means everyone, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I think it's... It's not dual-culturalism, it's it's multiculturalism. Exactly, exactly, right? So, So I think it's really important to keep in mind how much multiculturalism is under attack and how fundamentally important it is for everybody, you know, like, um, the, our, the, the world as it looks today, if it wasn't multicultural, would be a feeling world. You cannot build economies. You cannot think about sustainability. You can't think about a future without it being a multicultural future anywhere in the world. So the, the, the cities that do the best, the countries that do the best, are countries that are able to attract the best people. And those people are invariably multicultural. Like, that's what... Um, First, creativity, um, innovation, all those buzzwords that we talk about in terms of strategy, those things are founded in multiculturalism. As an individual, Sanke is unique. But while her specific journey is hers alone, the fact that she's traveled far and wide is not uncommon, particularly for those of African descent. The African diaspora represents 13% of Americans and 3.5% of Canadians. It consists roughly of 140 million people worldwide. Here's a small perspective on what that means. Full name is Mugadan Razvandari. By profession, I'm a regulated immigration consultant uh, working at MDS Visa Immigration Services in Toronto now. I'm also actively involved in social services through non-resident Nepalese association locally as an advisor and to room to read globally. Quickly, before we get into your business, um, your name, does it mean anything? Well, it does, because uh, back in home, every name has its meaning. Uh, Moga is coral that is found in sea area, although we do not have sea in Nepal, but it is a coral. And Razvandari, my last name, uh, is our our ancestor, our grandparents, or grandparents, even great-grandparents were working as a storekeeper of king 
That is why our name, last name is Razvandari. What inspired you to get into that business? Well, uh, about 21 years ago, I came to Canada as a permanent resident. Uh, I applied to the federal program and I was supposed to be coming to Toronto. But in the meantime, I had a couple of friends who we went to university together in Montreal. By 2015, I had license and I opened my own business in Montreal. So initially, my community people helped a lot because there were so many clients. For me, I, don't have, I didn't have to go anywhere to find clients. I already had those people around me, so I started with them. And gradually, uh, I started going different countries and different communities. Uh, in 2016, I moved to Toronto because Toronto is one of the biggest places in Canada and lots of clients and lots of people. Uh, if we talk about just my minority, invisible minority community in Toronto, I think we are about 30 to 40,000 people here. Wow. So all those inspired me to work on immigration, and I'm also happy that when I help them, they're happy when they have got their documentation as an immigrant, uh, and they have a big dream to fulfill, and it is one of the best country to live in. So I established this uh, both in Montreal and Toronto. Now I also expanded to Nepal. We have a branch in Nepal too. Well, congratulations on that. But um, specifically about the, the clients that you have, are most of them from the Nepalese community or do you have people from other uh, ethnic ethnicities uh, coming to you? Uh, I have a mix of all. Uh, most of them Nepalese, but they are living in different countries, such as uh, United States, Australia, UK, Norway, uh, South Korea, everywhere. Uh, beside Nepalese people, I also have uh, clients from India, Pakistan, UK, even Norway, South Korea, everywhere. As a lawyer and an immigration lawyer, do you get insight into why people are looking to immigrate? Most people immigrate to Canada for their better future, obviously. Uh, for example, for a student, it is one of the best destinations because of its internationally renowned degree and low tuition fee compared to other countries. For skilled people, uh, we have a faster process since 2015. As long as people have high enough score, uh, they could immigrate within six months as a skilled immigrate, uh, uh, skilled people. And there are so many other options to immigrate to Canada, such as uh, if you're an entrepreneur, if you want to do business in Canada, you can come here. There are so many different programs people could fit in. Uh, their target is to bring young people, educated people, experienced people, so that they could immediately contribute to Canadian economy. That's a good thing. When you move to a different country, how do you get through some of the challenges of going to a different country? So as an adult, I've lived in um, South Africa, uh, you know, in Johannesburg. I then lived in New York uh, for a little bit. We moved to Mozambique for about a year, and then we moved to Australia. So I've, I've done a fair bit of moving as an adult. Um, 
part of what makes it uh, relatively easy for me to settle into a new place is the fact that, one, I've done it before, so habit. <laughs> Just, mm-hmm. you know, as if you move around a lot as a kid, you know, as you would know, what you get used to is this idea of how to be friendly, how to blend in, how to figure out the social scenario very quickly. So that's just like at a deeply personal level. But I think the other thing about moving around uh, and the facilitation of that for me as an adult has been my class status. Being a middle-class person of the world, regardless of your race, um, makes life a lot easier. You have um, access to all kinds of things that make moves easier. So as I'm moving around the world, I'm flying, which is a very different journey to taking a boat, right? uh, as I'm moving around, I am a very strong first, uh, first English as a first language speaker, which makes the places I've moved to easier transitions. Um, so that's a very different thing if you're coming from Syria or if you're coming from Iraq or if you're coming from Eritrea. So on the one hand, like at a personal level, uh, I have some skills and some tools that help me to move easier and to get to know communities and to um, spend invest time in building relationships deeply. And on the other hand, I have some structural macro factors that have shaped me that help me do it easier because I am middle class. I'm trying to extrapolate whether this is a Sanke phenomenon or if this is a household, uh, like I'm, I'm testing your theory a little bit and saying, um, and I know you cannot speak for your sisters or your family. Yeah. Do you think their experience uh, and their, their um, appreciation of what you just said would be the same, or do you think they might have a different take on it? I think it would be very similar. I think uh, part of the reason it would be similar is because my parents invested so much themselves in taking risks, the kind of risks that are pretty unusual for for migrants. Uh, So not only did we move to Canada, my parents then moved us away from Canada, right? (laughs) And usually the thing about migrants is you want, you know, you want to get the citizenship and then once you're there, you want to stay, you want to embed yourself in the society and really build, right? And in my parents' case, they didn't (laughs) mind. They were like, oh, well, okay, let's just try this, you know? So my parents very much had this um, interesting risk-taking. They were they were not risk-averse. Um, and whether that was business for my mom, whether it was career-wise with my dad, you know, he, he quit the United Nations. Like nobody quits the United Nations, right? It's it's um it's a very secure employment. Um, he did that. Um, uh, you know, he was a freedom fighter. So there's lots of things about their individual personalities that mean that my sisters and I grew up with um, people who were role modeling taking risks and moving and easing themselves into new societies and trying again repeatedly. And I think that definitely my sisters have that capacity as well. The next voice you hear is that of Walter Wismang. He is, among other things, Sanke's father. He's a South African who grew up in a very different time. A time defined by struggle. A time of apartheid. He's lived through much. If time allowed, I would interview him for days. Here, in part, is his perspective. My 
Mzema Boso, Mzema. I'm just one of those, I have one of those names which don't really have a meaning. Mavuso could perhaps be an indication of a person who wakes up others. To Vusa is to wake up. But really, it's not like the usual African names where you would say Mavuso or Temba, which means hope. Um, so and so, it is Mavuso Msiman. Uh, no particular uh, meaning to the first name. I know you as as Walter. Where did that name come from? Ah, my father's name was Walter, but I adopted that name when I left South Africa illegally, and I had to uh, adopt, assume uh, a pseudonym or a nom de guerre. Then I became Walter. Mavuso, just to confuse things. <laughs> <laughs> Sonke wrote a book, and yeah. in the book she describes basically her migration from 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 different places, to, you know, uh, coming to Canada and so on. And she does describe some of the motivations that led to that. But in your own words, can you explain to me what has driven your migration? When I left South Africa initially, the idea was that I was going to study, but the ANC had just been banned, and we organized ourselves underground, and I was elected to the top structure of the ANC, working underground in uh, Fort Hare. And a decision was taken when a plan was made for Chief Kaiser Matanzima, who had accepted the first one to start. He was a stooge, he was hated. They made him chancellor of the University of Fort Hare, and we didn't like that. And the decision was taken that we should stage a stairway, a boycott of his visit to Fort Hare. I was uh, one of the so-called ringleaders, and uh, the the boycott of his visit was so effective that uh, fewer than, I think, five uh, uh, students uh, went to the hall uh, uh, where he was supposed to address us. And uh, we knew that's the bad thing would hit the fan um, because the authorities knew who the organizers were. That is what prompted my departure from South Africa. While we were waiting for the charter to fly out to Jerusalem, uh, um, the leadership of the African National Congress, the high command, was arrested in a place called Rivonia, just outside Johannesburg. I uh, so. Mandela had already been Nelson Mandela had already been arrested because he had left the country, come back, and continued to do underground work. And they were tracking him, and they and they caught him, and he was in prison. But the rest of the leadership, uh, names like uh, um, Sisulu, uh, mm-hmm. Mbeki, um, Langeni, and others, most of them are dead now. Only two survive. Um, they were all caught in that, and it was a real blow to to the struggle. So uh, I decided in uh, Francistown that I wasn't going to pursue studies. Rather, I should go to learn uh, uh, military training, to study military training. Of course, uh, the um, ANC people agreed readily to that. So when we got to Dar es Salaam, we caught a flight to Moscow, and I spent about uh, a year. 11 months 
uh, two weeks in Moscow, uh, studying urban guerrilla warfare. And that meant uh, subjects like uh, topography, uh, the use of uh, homemade um, chemical explosives. Um, of course, how to shoot. We learned, we taught all weapons, I mean, all sorts of weapons on earth, uh, from a revolver to a bazooka to a heavy machine gun. And we were taught how to uh, to to uh, handle them, to clean them, and mm-hmm. how to use them. <laughs> so we could dismantle any of those things. Uh, the understanding, of course, being that we would need to know as many types of weapons as possible because uh, um, we, we didn't expect that we would capture everything from, from the enemy. We, we thought we would capture some of the stuff from the enemy. We didn't expect that there would be a safe way of taking enough weaponry into South Africa when we got back there. So it's, it, it's those things there. But also... They, they taught you, as they always would, politics, you know, which was <laughs> dialectical materialism and, and mm-hmm. all of those things, Marxism and all of that. Of course. Yeah, so I specialized in communication. How did you um, how did you feel as you were living in exile? I mean, about not being able really to return to your, to your country. And then the follow-up question is, how was the return home? Yeah, I think there are two phases in life outside. The first one being what uh, being when I was directly involved in military operations in day-to-day work for uh, the ANC. There, really, you didn't have much time to wonder when you're going back home when, in fact, it was your responsibility to find ways of getting back home. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So... You, 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 you desire to be home, but not wanting to be home in the way that you might want to go to Malawi and have a great life. Going home was, first of all, going to deal with the problem at hand, the problem of uh, oppression, of being ruled by white people and so on. So you missed the people, you missed family, and from time to time when heard about what had happened, so and so had died, and so on. I mean, it would it would hit you. But uh, that phase, maybe we also had psyched ourselves, and that's the only way we would survive. You really, in your mind, I'm talking my mind, was uh, we will make it back, mm-hmm. and uh, and one may one might die in the process of doing that, but that's what I volunteered to do. So you did not always envisage life um, uh, going back to a normal life in South Africa. The normal life was going to be brought about by the changes that you were going to bring about through revolution. Okay. Uh, so, so, so that was that. But later when I had a family, um, I was anxious for the children to know their their, yeah. their, 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 their grandmothers, their grandparents, and so on. Uh, they knew the mother's side. They were able, fortunately, to travel to Swaziland, <coughs> uh, thanks to the fact that Ndombi uh, was not South African. So they had one uh, branch of uh, their, uh, their, their family the maternal branch in Swaziland and quite accessible. And so they would travel as 
much as don't be troubled with them whenever she had time to go on holiday. So they did know the Swazi people. Mm. And arrangements would be made to perhaps somebody comes from outside of South Africa and, uh, and they meet in Swaziland. Uh, not often, though. My mother did come out of uh, South Africa to see the family when we're living in Kenya. Um, so, so there was that. But, uh, you know, we were in a privileged uh, situation as a family. Um, I had a good job with the United Nations, and I could afford to take the children to the international schools, you know, the... Um, international schools U.S. or international schools British, and and so uh, and so the that helped um, with their futures for sure because mm-hmm. they went to good schools and and when it came time to go to university, the American universities would always compete for students. It was an amazing thing. Um, they I don't know if you know the system there. Uh, they uh, universities send applications to international schools, kind of advertising the, the services they have, and there was quite a bit of uh, sponsorship subsidizing of uh, the fees, the education fees. Mm-hmm. I think, to some extent, this is just my own theory. The American Americans became such a great nation because uh, until Trump and other crazy people came, they were always welcoming and thought they could benefit from immigrants of a certain caliber. Have you ever had uh, moments of friction between the two of you? Well, it would be a parent-child kind of friction. I don't even think it should be elevated to the level of friction. You know, like growing up, children don't study enough and uh, I have to help out with uh, math and other things. Okay. But in terms of uh, outlook, political outlook, no, there never was. I started realizing that uh, there was a bit of, uh, she was a lot more radical uh, on on modern issues. Uh, on issues, for instance, like, uh, like gender, uh, you know, without being conscious of it. I mean, in fact, she made me very conscious of how sexist I was, you know. Um, a lot more progressive than other people, thanks to my uh, living with her. Uh, so so uh, there, there wasn't a point of difference because she embraced, perhaps she was even more radical when we started, uh, when we were in a position to discuss politics. Uh, There's no question of, but uh, you know, where you're abandoning us here, we have no uh, home, uh, what's our future? She, she always understood that our stay in uh, our life in, in exile was, in her own words at one time, was but a detour. A quick note to our subscribers. 54 Lights will have full-length feature interviews with both Mavuso Mismang and Mugadan Razvandari. Those will be made available in the coming weeks. For now, let's get back to Sanke. Recently uh, published the international publication of your book, correct? Is that is that the, the fair? Yeah. It's a it's an account of your life, but it, it is a very personal account of your life. What compelled you 
to go personal? So firstly, it was my first book and I thought about the daunting challenge of research. I'm a nonfiction writer and I thought about how daunting it would be to research a book <laughs> and be a mother and, you know, like all the other kind of things. Um, and so I thought, well, I know the subject. <laughs> so, so that was the first thing. I mean, secondly, and, and probably more, you know, seriously and more importantly, South Africa is a country that is, has been dominated by very large men. Um, the stories of men, the stories of heroes, whether that's Nelson Mandela, whether that's General Jan Smuts, um, whether that's Cecil John Rhodes, you know, you have these large, uh, larger-than-life characters who have animated our history. Um, and so I wanted to give voice to a different kind of story, which was the story of, like, ordinary people who have been caught up in extraordinary events. Um, and it seemed like, uh, you know, to write a memoir when you're in your 30s is really not to try to show off about any accomplishments, because I have none of those to show off about, but it's to try to spotlight really small stories. So I was kind of taking a deliberate opposite uh, you know, to the mainstream and to the norm and really talking about small stories, ordinary things. And I think that's the stuff of, of, of history, but it's also the stuff that women, that um, younger people, that people who want to um, have a say often are intimidated by the big story. Mm -hmm. And so I also kind of wanted to role model to people like we can do this. Uh, and so that's why I chose this form. So I'm curious as to what made you choose to pick up the, like, sort of the pen, if you will, versus pursuing uh, another line of, um, of uh, expression. Mm. So I feel most comfortable on the page. I have had lots of training in radio and in television um, in the last five years. Uh, that's, I think, a function of... Um, this new world. Um, so when I decided to start writing, I undertook a number of fellowships and each of those fellowships, interestingly enough, and I didn't really, you know, sometimes you look at things retrospectively and you're like, oh, that's, you know, that's why they did that. So each of those fellowships offered opportunities to get practice, uh, you know, appearing in the media. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really understand that that's because that's how the world works now. <laughs> so I sort of did it because I was like, oh, well, you know, I have to do it as part of the fellowship. But it stood me in good stead. But it's not my most comfortable zone, right? My most comfortable zone is writing um, because I can edit, I can delete. <laughs> um, so I have to prepare myself in different ways for television, especially TV. Just mm, it's not my thing. Right. Um, so, yeah, writing feels like the most thoughtful uh, and important way for me to make my mark, but I recognize the importance of being able to do all of them. Why are you here? I am here to... build bridges. In a moment of crisis, if something has gone wrong, is it your instinct, your natural instinct, to pick up a pen or to pick up a sword? Are you the type that is going to write your congressperson or are you going to go and protest in the streets? Streets. If you could spend two weeks anywhere in the world, 
Where are you going? The Maldives. <laughs> you sounded like, obviously, well, you should have said that. <laughs> like, duh. <laughs> uh, and a follow-up to that, who's going with you? Simon. <laughs> Partly because I haven't seen it. I feel like I haven't seen him this whole year because oh. we've been sort of passing ships in the night. I'll come, I'll come back to that one if, uh, if we have time. Um, yeah. When nobody's watching, when there's no mic on, when there's no, uh, nobody scrutinizing you, what is Sanke doing? Writing. <laughs> Sad. <laughs> and what are you writing about? Um, often it's just ideas uh, that have struck me. So it's, it, actually, let me answer it properly either reading or writing and so my writing often stems from something I've come across an idea that I've come across in an article or uh, a phrase in a book that really hits me that I think I want to explore a little bit further so I have like all these ran I'm not a very organized person but I have all these random you know pages that are um, you know word documents that I've opened up that have like you know three paragraphs of writing about a particular subject, and that will often be the thing that makes me write a longer piece or a bigger essay uh, on something. What's your guilty pleasure? Chocolate. Dark chocolate, white chocolate. Oh, anything with salted caramel, I'm, I'm in. So whether it's dark or milk chocolate, doesn't matter. But if there's salted caramel, I'm like, I'm done for. Um, South Africa, Canada, or Australia. South Africa. Fiction or non-fiction to consume? Fiction. Fiction or non-fiction to create? Ha ha ha. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I wish I could write fiction, but it's probably an area in which I lack confidence, so I would say non-fiction. Nice. I think you answered this by default already, but sweet or savory? Oh, I like both, but sweet. Perfect. Summer, winter, spring, or fall? Oh, summer. Very important one is coming up. Uh, soccer, Australian rules football, or hockey? Are you kidding me? Soccer. Football. <laughs> Real football. That's why I, have to, I have to throw it in there. Okay. <laughs> this will probably get played in North America if it does. So, <laughs> so I have to say soccer. Um, MJ or Prince? Great answer. That's an impossible question. Um, <laughs> wine, scotch, or beer? Wine. In the movie about your life, the biopic, who plays Sanke? Carrie Washington. <laughs> <laughs> and what's the name of the movie? <laughs> the name of the movie is... You'll never guess what happened. Simon. Yeah, let's talk Simon. Okay. What would Simon say about you? Oh, <laughs> he'd say, I love her, but she's so frustrating. <laughs> I'm a, um, so Simon is my calming influence. He's very, I, you know, the older I get, the more calm I am. But I'm also quite passionate 
fiery. Like I obviously care about you know social issues. I get um, you know I get fired up. And Simon is just really good with being a very calm and still presence. Um, but I'm tough. I'm a tough person to be in a relationship with because I inspect everything. I want to talk about everything. Um, I'm interested in power. So I challenge him a lot. And often, uh, he, you know, he takes that really well. But I think often it's just exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's too funny. Well, he's, he's a great guy. And he's doing us all a service, I suppose, by keeping you, <laughs> keeping you calm. Keeping me contained. <laughs> So there you have it. The conversation continues. I'd like to thank Sonke for her time, intellect, and candor. I'd also like to thank all my guests for their thoughtful contributions. Music for this episode was composed, enjoyed, and used with permission by Anjo. I invite you to visit us at 54lights.com and hear more interviews with people who are far beyond ordinary. And please find us on YouTube. Subscribe, listen, and like. Thanks for listening. Until we meet again.